Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Today's discussion is with Austin Larson, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado, who's boarded in both pediatrics and medical genetics and genomics, and works in the clinical genetics and metabolism department. As a disclaimer, he and I also did residency together, and he's one of the smartest people that I know. Have you ever had one of those friends who you hang out with and Every single time you both feel smarter and dumber because they prove to you how much you don't know, but then they teach it to you, that's Austin for me. He's about to drop some serious knowledge on us about the patients that he specializes in and what we do with them in the emergent and urgent care setting. There is so much content here that I had to split it into two parts, though I'm going to upload these simultaneously to put all of that information at your fingertips. He lists a number of great resources, which I've linked to in the show notes, as well as put some of the key points in there. We've structured the discussion in two parts. This first one is all about the crashing neonates. So you got a baby that's a couple days old and may or may not have had a newborn screen that resulted, and they show up in your ER or your urgent care, and they're sick, and you need to start working them up and start stabilizing. What do you do? As usual, I'm going to drop you directly into the conversation, and I've asked Austin to start by giving us an idea of when he gets these consults or if he were seeing the patient, how would he break them down and think about them? So I think the primary way that I would differentiate would be pre-return of newborn screen and post-return of newborn screen because you're Diagnostic reasoning is going to be a little bit different in those two situations. So pre-newborn screen, really everything's on the table. The odds of an acute inherited metabolic disease presentation is much higher in the days prior to the return of newborn screen. So just to take a step back and kind of talk about what, what newborn screen is. So that is a heel poke blood spot test. We ask that hospitals that, that deliver children do that at 24 hours of life. And the test is calibrated to be maximally sensitive and specific with a sample obtained at 24 hours. Depends on the state that you're in, in terms of when results are expected, but typically it's day four, day five of life when you would expect to get results from newborn screening. Different states have different algorithms for how they act on results. In our state, the results come directly to the metabolics clinic. So you in the ED may be hearing from a metabolics physician prior to ever seeing the patient saying, here's a kid who we think is going to be sick on the way in, and here's what we want you to do about yeah, it. Yeah, we, we here get a little bit spoiled because usually the expert is the one calling me to tell me, hey, here's this result, here's how to think about it, and here's what to do. But uh, I'm aware that we get spoiled here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, not everyone practices at a large academic children's hospital. Obviously, the majority of people don't. So I'll, I'll try to make sure to make this relevant to, to those folks as well. So let's start with a, a neonate in the uh, third, fourth, fifth day of life prior to return of newborn screen, who comes in for poor feeding, not acting right, seeming sleepy, temperature dysregulation, not breathing right, whatever it is, as you very well know, symptoms in neonates are pretty nonspecific. You know, I have much respect for you all in the emergency room in terms of just the, the breadth of disease that you have to deal with and deal with, you know, really acutely and, and quickly. But I would say... If you see a neonate that kind of 
trips your threshold, whatever it is for getting labs, if you're pretty concerned about that, that baby, a number of labs come to mind for me from the perspective of differentiating metabolic diseases. So glucose, lactate, another is ammonia, uric acid, and ketones. By obtaining those five tests, which are all pretty inexpensive, pretty rapid turnaround tests, pretty broadly available tests, you can really quickly start to, to differentiate which metabolic diseases you might be concerned about and how concerned you are. For the ketones, are you looking for specific serum levels or are we talking that you know what comes back on the urine screen is enough? Gain a little bit more information by doing a serum level. If you have that capability at your hospital, I would I would recommend it. You know, it's in the same tube as your general chemistry. Right. So it's it's pretty easy to just add that on to, to whatever other tests that you're doing. If that's not done in-house, then you know you get 90% of the information that you need from just a uh, UA. So those tests, glucose, ammonia, lactate, uric acid, and, and ketones, are there broad categories of the diseases that you deal with that you can make more or less likely depending on which of those are elevated? Is, is there an easy way to think about this or is this something we should always be looking up? Yeah. I mean, there's a, a couple rules of thumb. So ammonia, elevated ammonia is a, a relatively common cause for encephalopathy in a neonate because that can originate with a, a number of different metabolic diseases. So the first ones that come to mind are the urea cycle diseases. Most common among them is ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. And the important thing to know about that is that there's not a good newborn screen for OTC. So I'll call it OTC going forward because we, we may be talking about it quite a bit. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to list uh, or, ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency as ideally not. all the time. <laughs> right. I don't think I could actually say that more than once. <laughs> so um, anytime that you have a potentially encephalopathic neonate or even outside of the neonatal period, uh, obtaining ammonia is one of the first things that you should do. And one of the big reasons for that is what we have found about long-term prognosis in disorders that cause hyperaminemia is that the most important prognostic factor is not the height of the ammonia, but the duration of hyperaminemia. So the earlier that hyperaminemia can be identified and treated, the better the neurologic prognosis for the child. A um, couple things to know about ammonia, it is susceptible to some artifacts. So if it's drawn with a tourniquet, if it's a difficult lab draw with hemolysis, if the sample isn't put on ice, if it isn't run within 15 or 20 minutes of being obtained, all those things can elevate an ammonia. To give you the kind of numbers that I think of, I, I think of ammonia in micromolar. Up to 100 is, is considered normal in a neonate. Uh, it would be more like up to 50 in, a, in an older child. Between 100 and 200 is fairly nonspecific. That could be related to a metabolic disorder, but it also could be artifact of the lab draw. Over 200, I'm pretty concerned for a, a potential metabolic disorder. And, you know, if we, if we get something over 200, I'm, I'm probably not going to stop to redo that lab before we intervene on it. Those are good numbers to, to keep in your head. And elevated ammonia, it, is this present across the majority of the disorders that we're talking about that are in your realm, or are there specific ones that need to come to mind? Yeah, urea cycle defect is the, is the primary one. The next one to think about would be organic acidemias. The best way to differentiate between those two is that kids with an organic acidemia have typically have an acidosis as well as hyperaminemia. Kids with a urea cycle defect typically don't have an acidosis. 
And actually, one of the classic presentations of OTC is a respiratory alkalosis because the ammonia actually has a, a primary effect on the respiratory center of the brain that, that causes hyperpnea. Kids with fatty acid oxidation disorders can get hyperaminemic. It tends to be less severe and it tends to be later on uh, in the presentation, but that's a possibility as well. So those, those three would be on the differential for hyperaminemia. So uh, we talked about obtaining an ammonia in the case of an encephalopathic child. The other big thing that's almost always done in EDs um, is at least get a, a point of care glucose. And that's almost always the first thing that's yeah. done for an encephalopathic child. For a child that has a low, low glucose, there are a couple ways to differentiate. The first thing that I'll say on that front is that the vast majority of children with hypoglycemia do not have metabolic diseases. So our, our yield for testing for metabolic diseases is, is quite low if the only indication is hypoglycemia. And I just want to clarify here that we are still talking about the neonate that's a couple days old. So this would be first episode of hypoglycemia. If you've got a kid who's got recurrent hypoglycemia, the likelihood that there's an underlying endocrine or metabolic disorder is much higher. Obviously, you wouldn't wait to talk to a metabolic specialist to act on a, a hypoglycemic episode. You would be treating that immediately. The big group of disorders that comes to mind for hypoglycemia is glycogen storage disorders. They are typically not going to present in the neonatal period. We do have rare cases where kids with glycogen storage disorders have presented in the neonatal period, but it's typically more like four, five, six months. The first thing that we would want you to do and the first thing that we would ask you about in the setting of a, a significantly hypoglycemic child is whether the liver is enlarged. So glycogen storage disorders can be broken down into hepatic and muscular glycogen storage disorders and, and some that affect both. Uh, it's really the hepatic glycogen storage disorders that cause hypoglycemia. Uh, and most of those it's not always true, but most of those will have a pretty apparent uh, hepatomegaly on exam. I think at this point, since we're, we're talking about uh, hypoglycemia, it would be worth taking a step back to talk about the timing of hypoglycemia. So this is really the most critical factor in terms of the history that you obtain that will help us on the metabolic side in terms of sorting out what's the likelihood of a metabolic disorder, and also um, what type of metabolic disorder we might, we might be thinking about. So all, almost all metabolic disorders that cause hypoglycemia, it's a fasting hypoglycemia. So these are disorders of the mechanisms that allow you to fast. So being in the fed state is not compatible with metabolic hypoglycemia. The one exception to that is um, the disorder that I mentioned, hereditary fructose intolerance. So you can get an acute hypoglycemia in the setting of fructose consumption. Other than that one disorder, everything that we're talking about, fatty acid oxidation disorders, glycogen storage disorders, gluconeogenesis disorders, those are all fasting hypoglycemias. So the, the glycogen storage disorders are going to be the earliest to present in terms of fasting because glycogenolysis is your initial compensation for fasting. Uh, it tends to take four, five, six hours um, for you to start relying on glycogenolysis to maintain blood glucose. So um, any hypoglycemia that is uh, shorter than about four hours is probably not metabolic in origin. The big exception to that is uh, kids that aren't feeding well. So um, so the kind of four to six hour range would be what I would think of in terms of uh, a glycogen storage disorder. And as I mentioned previously, if that's your history, then the most critical thing on your exam is to look for hepatomegaly. Going out a little bit further than that, six to eight 
10, 12 hours. That's sort of uh, the time frame for uh, gluconeogenesis disorders. Those are quite rare. So more typically, we're talking about fatty acid oxidation disorders, which are typically a longer fast. Your body's not really reliant completely on fatty acid oxidation until you get out to like, you know, 12 hours fasting. Now that's shorter in neonates and children. So we have a couple rules of thumb for our kids with fatty acid oxidation disorders. And there's no good data on this, but anecdotally, we would say that a, a child could fast for one hour for every kilo of body weight that they have, or a child could fast for one hour for every month old they are beyond four hours. So, you know, almost all kids can fast four hours, but, you know, a five kilo baby or a five month old baby, you would think of five hours as being an appropriate fast for them that's unlikely to provoke hypoglycemia, even in the setting of a metabolic disorder. So what about the same kid who comes in and is not clearly encephalopathic, but has uh, acidosis that you're trying to figure out and sort of what, what kind of things would, would make you worry that it's more in your realm? Acidosis from the perspective of, of metabolic disease is always a gap acidosis. So the first thing, if you call a, a metabolic specialist about a, a kid with acidosis, first thing that we'll ask you about is what's the anion gap. And uh, if it's a non-gap acidosis, there really aren't many things on the differential for, in terms of metabolic disease right. for non-GAP acidosis. Right. In terms of GAP acidosis, basically all metabolic disorders cause either a lactic acidosis, a ketoacidosis, or both. And then the rest of the anion GAP is up to your toxicology friends. Uh, so with within those, for the ones that cause elevated lactate versus the ones that cause elevated ketone, can you give us sort of which, which diagnoses are we likely to be looking at? And then we've been yeah, this brings up a great point, which is that the metabolism of a neonate really cannot generate a significant ketoacidosis unless there's a metabolic disease present. So if you see anything more than trace ketones in a neonate, that would be an indication in and of itself to call a metabolic physician. In a, and this actually comes up semi-frequently when we have the sick kid, because a lot of other times in the older ones when they've got slightly more than trace, and especially if they've been vomiting or they're sick, we kind of don't chalk it up to being worried that that's a, a concern for some sort of underlying metabolic illness. But it's good to know that the neonates, it's unlikely that they can develop those ketones without there being an underlying inherited metabolic disorder. Yeah, that, that would be very concerning to me if, if you have a, a neonate who is symptomatic and has anything more than, than trace ketones. <laughs> Man, I wish that I was better with audio and that I could put a knowledge bomb sound effect in there because there was so much good stuff that Austin just dropped. Really important, I want to highlight what he said about neonates. Neonates without a metabolic disorder generally cannot generate a significant ketoacidosis, even in the setting of hypoglycemia or poor feeding. So if you have a brand new baby who's got sky-high ketones, Metabolic disorders should be very high on your list. Next up, I asked Austin to try to give us a breakdown of disorders that we should worry about based on which lab is elevated, ketones, lactate, or both. Yeah, so the, the things that I would think of are organic acidemias typically are more of a ketoacidosis than a lactic acidosis, but there is a, a combination of both. Mitochondrial disorders typically are primarily a lactic acidosis. There are a couple other more unusual causes of, of lactic acidosis. So one is something called hereditary fructose intolerance. Another thing that you would think of is pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency. Disorders of gluconeogenesis, which is a that would be a very rare cause of both hypoglycemia and lactic acidosis. Um, those are the, the primary things that come to mind for me. And, and none of those things are um, touched on, on on newborn screen. 
that's a good way to think about it. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, before we, we start talking about other things that might present a little bit later, um, my question to you is, you know, you've got a, I don't know, a five day old neonate who, uh, who is presenting, uh, encephalopathic and has an elevated ammonia and, uh, you have significant concern that this is inherited metabolic disorder. You know, what, what do we do, uh, to support that kid? Anything that we need to think of to start other than the things that we would otherwise do blood pressure support and antibiotics and sort of looking for the other, uh, causes of it, um, specifically from your realm, sort of what do I do for that kid while, you know, I'm waiting to get you on the phone? Yeah. Uh, the primary thing is to give high doses of glucose. So um, you would uh, order up D10 as opposed to D5 as your maintenance fluids. Um, you would give it at uh, 150% of your typical maintenance rate. Um, we That's kind of our knee-jerk reaction to tell you what to do. Um, we're certainly relying on you to think about things like um, you know, is this a kid with um, cerebral edema where maybe that, that could be harmful or a kid with uh, potential heart failure right. where, where that fluid rate could be harmful? So um, we definitely appreciate and would want some pushback if it feels to you like this is a kid who might be harmed by a, right. a higher than typical fluid rate. Um, but that's, uh, you know, D10 um, is something that's pretty widely available you know, even in uh, smaller hospitals without, uh, you know, without a 24-hour in-house pharmacy to mix up IV fluids, you can typically at least get D10 water started right. um, as a stopgap measure while you're waiting to, to talk to a metabolic physician. So um, for almost every disorder that we're, we're talking about, except for if you just have an isolated lactic acidosis, um, you can actually contribute to a lactic acidosis by giving high dose glucose. Um, other than that, um, uh, do you know the mechanism for that off the top of your head? Well, yeah, it's just, a, you know, it's just, a um, lactate is, is one of the products of glycolysis. So, um, the more substrate you're putting into the pathway, the more just you're going to get out in that engine. Yep. Um, so, um, that's something, you know, if we do, if we do recommend, uh, high dose glucose, that would be something to think about in the back of your head if, if uh, an acidosis is worsening, then maybe recheck a lactate and then maybe you need to, to drop the uh, glucose infusion rate. Do you have standard recommendations for repeating of these labs? So you get something that's back abnormal and um, uh, are these kids that you need you, from your standpoint to trend what the lactate or ammonia is doing? Is that helpful? Uh, ammonia, very much so. Lactate, less so. Um, so... Um, you know, different people have, have different criteria in their minds for uh, pulling the trigger on dialysis for hyperammonemia. Um, but a, a pretty immediate um, repeat ammonia is going to be very helpful in terms of helping us to think about whether we're going to mobilize the resources for dialysis or not. So um, depending on the situation, people might say an ammonia over 300 micromolar and rising would, should trigger you to, to start getting the mechanisms in place to do dialysis. Um, and we have to, you know, we have to kind of have a, a low threshold for that because, you know, it takes four, six, eight hours right. to get the surgeon to put in a line, have the, you know, nephrologist get, get all the machines ready. Um, there's a, a big lag time. So um, we probably, uh, an ammonia over 300 and rising and not responding to uh, just, you know, IV glucose, uh, would be an indication for us to start thinking about dialysis. So uh, because of that, uh, a fairly quick um, trend of ammonia would be helpful. 
So I would say if you have an elevated ammonia over 200, probably you should be checking that every two hours until you get a sense of what the trend is. Um, lactate, less so. Um, uh, for a couple of reasons, one it's it's pretty nonspecific. So right. um, the ma- the majority of the elevated lactate that you're gonna that you're gonna see is sepsis. Yeah, or, say, as anybody who's listened to the stuff on sepsis that we talked about, like, yeah. lactate is is a little bit of a crapshoot as far as what to do with it. Although yeah. you know, trending can sometimes help um, for eval of response to therapy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so and and lactate, unlike ammonia, you know, ammonia is a neurotoxin. Lactate is not. Um, lactate is actually energetic substrate yeah, in the body. Yeah, it's a marker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a it's a marker that that you need to be further investigating this child. Um, but the lactate trend on that kind of hour by hour basis is is not really going to inform decision making the way that an ammonia trend. Right. Well, well, what about the the patients who were still in the, the neonatal period? They present with severe acidosis. Is is bicarb actually helpful for in, in this setting? And then the follow up question is: Does it alter any of the your diagnostic testing? So are there things that we need to draw before we go ahead and give? I guess this is glucose too that aren't going to be quite as useful afterwards for your eventual diagnosis. It's a great question. So here at at our hospital, um, because we do have a relatively higher fraction of of kids who actually do have metabolic disease uh, in the setting of of hypoglycemia, uh, we have an order panel here, which is, we call it the critical sample or the critical hypoglycemia sample. Um, So those are things that are helpful in the acute uh, hypoglycemic episode. The main thing for me is ketones. So if if you can get me ketones at the time of hypoglycemia, that's quite helpful for, for starting to differentiate the, the cause of the hypoglycemia. Other things, we, we get organic acids, we get amino acids, we will get free fatty acids, which is kind of an esoteric uh, lab, but that can be helpful for us. Lactate in the setting of, of hypoglycemia, those are the things that are on the critical sample from the metabolic side. The endocrine side is probably even more time sensitive. So the endocrinologists are really going to want to know what, what's the exact context of the blood, the lab draw in terms of the cortisol, you know, primarily cortisol in right. terms of how they're going to interpret that result. Um, so yes, there are uh, critically timed samples, both from a metabolic and an endocrine perspective. Um, but from from my perspective, you can almost always get ketones, and that that's very helpful for it's me. The big the big difference, and I'll yep. list the labs that are in that critical sample. Back to that original question. So, you know, bicarb for these patients with acidosis, yeah. can it be helpful to them to resolve or at least improve some of the acidosis if if that's the cause of some of their cardiovascular dysfunction or their their altered mental status? Yeah, I would say if you if you have a patient with low blood pressure or cardiomyopathy related to acidosis, by all means, treat the acidosis. You know, DKA is kind of the big one where bicarb is potentially contraindicated right. and has, has been shown to be harmful. In terms of the metabolic diseases, I would say, you know, treat the acidosis if it's affecting the child and then we'll we'll sort things out later. Um, I appreciate that. That's how you approach it. Cause sometimes that's all that we can do is like, they're going to be alive and then uh, somebody else is going to have to do the final diagnosis. Yep, yep. Um, all right. So, so moving on from the, I want to mention one more thing in terms of the acutely encephalopathic neonate. So one disorder that actually is not addressed by these basic labs is called maple syrup urine disease. So, um, maple syrup, have you ever actually smelled the urine from maple syrup <laughs> urine disease? I haven't, but I want to before I, before I'm finished practicing. We actually, we tend to smell the earwax. Um, <laughs> Does it smell like maple syrup? 
uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a little bit less offensive than putting your nose in a diaper. So, <laughs> although they're both they're both not great. Uh, <laughs> um, so the the cerumen and the diaper both can can smell like maple syrup. There's a lot of reasons for diapers to smell like maple syrup. So I, actually, I'm guessing that you probably have we had this as a yeah, presentation. Well, we see a lot of people who present and say, "I think my kid's urine smells funny," and then yeah. it's like, "Well, what what's yeah. funny to you?" Yeah. So that's a pretty low yield indication for, for testing, uh, in my experience. Um, I'm not aware of any of our patients who presented that way. Um, it's usually more of an incidental retrospective. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it was a little bit funny. Yeah. So uh, unlikely in the kid who's completely fine and normal, but, but yeah. maybe in the patient who's encephalopathic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, there's a lot of reasons for a diaper to smell like maple syrup. Like a lot of mothers use fenugreek to support lactation. So that creates the same molecule as uh, maple syrup urine disease, which is called sodalol. So that is probably our biggest false positive for the smell of maple syrup urine. But it's just, I don't know, it comes up all the time. And like I said, it's almost never the <laughs> the initial presentation of maple syrup urine disease. Um, the cerumen is more, that's more specific. So, you know, there are yeah. fewer reasons for your ear for to, your smell ear like, to smell like maple syrup. Smell like maple syrup. Um, what, um, what, what category of these illnesses is maple syrup urine disease fall in? That's a good question. So it's it's sort of a, it's kind of a gray area. So we have a category of conditions that we think of called amino acidopathies. So those are disorders where the abnormal metabolites are amino acids. Those typically don't really have acute presentations, so I'd, we haven't talked about them much. Maple syrup urine disease will be detectable on urine organic acids. So for the purposes of acute management, you can consider it to be a, an organic acidemia. That said, these kids don't have an acidosis. They're not hypoglycemic. They don't have significant ketosis. They're just encephalopathic kids with pretty normal labs. So um, you have to have a relatively high index of suspicion for maple syrup urine disease. And the, the way to uh, definitively diagnose it is to get serum amino acids, um, although typically it's also detectable in urine organic acids. All right. Anything else on the, the little babies? The acutely ill neonate? Um, no, I think, I think that mostly covers it. So the take-home points would be um, give high-dose glucose. So that would be D10 at 150% of your typical maintenance rate if you have any suspicion for metabolic disease and it's not contraindicated for another reason. Um, if you have elevated ammonia, that's typically either an organic acidemia or a urea cycle defect, to differentiate between those two, if the kid's acidotic, then it's probably an organic acidemia. If they're not acidotic or if they're even alkalotic, it's probably a urea cycle defect. The fatty acid oxidation disorders would be something that can present with hypoglycemia in the neonatal period. Typically, it's with a history of some kind of feeding problems. That is a hypoketotic hypoglycemia. I, I mentioned you had asked in terms of what, what's your number one lab for differentiating causes of, of hypoglycemia, and I mentioned that it was ketones, and that's primarily to, to strip out the uh, fatty acid oxidation disorders from everything else. So everything else is a ketotic hypoglycemia. Fatty acid oxidation disorders are a hypoketotic hypoglycemia. It's not a non-ketotic hypoglycemia. So trace or small ketones is not uh, does not rule out a fatty acid oxidation disorder, but the ketones are relatively lower than they should be for the degree of, of hypoglycemia and of fasting. That's a good way to think about it. 
Um, and the really, in terms of the really most emergent things, obviously you're going to be treating hypoglycemia. You right. don't, you don't need to ask us to, to talk about that, but hyperaminemia, I wouldn't wait to talk to the metabolic doctor. If you have an ammonia over 200, um, you know, we want that kid on high dose glucose. First thing, if we can, if we can save that kid a, a round of dialysis, that's, that's huge. Truly every hour of hyperaminemia matters in terms of the eventual neurologic prognosis. I did ask Austin here about using ammonia scavengers such as aminol, which is the brand name of a combination of sodium benzoate and sodium phenylbutyrate. And his answer was that he does not think that we should be using them except at the specific direction of a metabolics physician. They're expensive, and many hospitals don't carry them, and they can be highly toxic. That's where we're going to finish part one of our discussion. Part two is going to focus on older kids. So once their newborn screen would have already come back or they've already got a diagnosis, what do you do as far as treatment for them? I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a review. It really does help others to find the podcast. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 